Hello, you guys. Welcome to episode 19 of The Smush Room, the podcast that deep dives on the well-known and more importantly, not so well-known hookups of your favorite reality TV stars. I am your host, Troy McKeady, and I just want to start right off the top by letting you know how selfless I'm being right now by even recording this episode because I turned off my air conditioner because it was making too much noise. And I'll have you know that it's... uh. It's around 90-something degrees right now where your boy is in Ohio, okay? So I'm really, really, really struggling in the heat. Um, You may hear irritability in my voice, but, like, I'm so excited to talk about this couple that I don't even give a damn. I don't give a damn. It's worth it. Um, I'm also recording this from my new apartment. I just moved, and um, this is, like, my first episode in my new apartment. So I'm, like, testing the sound, uh, testing to see how echoey it is um all of my furniture isn't here yet so it's gonna be pretty echoey because this room is like fairly empty but uh i'm excited i'm super excited um this episode is gonna be really fun there's nothing dark about this there's no like drug addiction or deaths or anything dark it's just fun and silly and a little bit messy um it's, uh, it was a short little fling, and it's just something that'll be fun to talk about. It's not going to be like, you know, a Tila Tequila Casey Johnson situation. It's just going to be fun. Today, we are talking about Drew Barrymore and Tom Green at your request. This was something that you guys requested in the Facebook group when I posted, when I asked, like, who you guys wanted to hear me talk about or who you wanted to come on and discuss with me. And this was. Um, this was a big one. Tom Green and Drew Barrymore, a lot of Drew Barrymore. There's a lot of, of Drew Barrymore that people want to hear. There's a lot of Drew Barrymore that I'm interested in. I really want to know more about Drew Barrymore and, uh, Corey Feldman. That's one that I definitely want to do. Um, I don't know. I just think Drew's great. I, I love her. I worship her. I probably should start off by letting you know that she's somebody that I also have like an unsavory, connection to she's a friend in my head and she's been a friend in my head since I was like very young so I feel this like sort of strange connection to her because I just I I truly like adore her like I I really 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 love Drew Barrymore and I think that there's a special place in hell for people who don't so if you're listening to this and you make fun of Drew Barrymore's voice or say negative things about her, you know, say anything unsavory or ungodly or unchristian about Drew Barrymore, God has a plan for you. And it's for you to burn eternally after you die. Because uh, Drew Barrymore is an angel sent here from God himself. And she's never done anything wrong ever in her whole life. She's only said perfect things. She's only spoken perfect sentences. She's only worn perfect clothes. She's just a great, a great, great person. And I love her. And I'm super excited to talk about this. Um, Tom Green, I'm going to be honest with you, was a little bit of a blind spot for me before this. I mean, you know, I watched the Tom Green show when I was really young. Um, I didn't watch it religiously. It was something that a lot of my straight friends really loved. Like, I remember a lot of my straight guy friends in like, late middle school, early high school, really being into Tom Green and thinking he was hysterical. I never really got it, but I will say, you know, like more than 10 years later, I completely understand. And and he was, you know, he was an innovator. He was very uh, pioneering in his uh, genre of what he did. And, you know, a lot of our, you know, television and, you know, what we do on social media, I think that he played a big part in and he's kind of un... um, 
he doesn't really get any sort of recognition recognition for what he's given our culture and just sort of how big of a deal he was at a time. So I don't know. I guess we can kind of get right into it. By the way, I'm like drinking right now too. So that I may like go from being very like coherent and making sense to at the end of this, just like sort of spouting off drunkenly about how much I love Drew Barrymore. And I'm also going to be like burping a lot, unfortunately, because beer makes me belch. So just a forewarning, that's what you're paying for this week. <laughs> you're paying to hear me burp, um, ramble, complain about being hot, and just talk about how much I like Drew Barrymore's lisp. I hope you're up for it. So Drew Barrymore and Tom Green dated from January of 1999 until they got engaged on July 8th of the year 2000. They were married on July of 2000, in July of 2001, and they divorced in October of 2002. So very short relationship. This is like one of those relationships that you always hear people talk about in countdowns when you hear like the shortest celebrity couples of all time or, you know, the shortest celebrity marriages of all time. They were married for a very short period of time. And I don't know. I, I have a lot to say about them as a couple. It's very strange. Um, it was a very strange time for both of them, but also very formative. Uh, I believe this was a really important time in Drew Barrymore's life. Like, I don't think, obviously, every moment kind of determines everybody's future, but I really do think this time in her life, not specifically because of this relationship, but just where she was uh, career-wise and you know, health-wise, sort of with her sobriety and uh, just you know, her, per- her perception and how she was sort of viewed in the media. This was a really big time for her. Things really like turned around for her a big time. So, um, again, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just going to start spouting out about how great Drew Barrymore's career is. Um, the reason that I'm going to be, the reason that I love Drew Barrymore so much is because I really truthfully feel like she, if Hollywood could give birth, if Hollywood was a, a, a woman, and she had a womb and a vagina and a reproductive system and she could get pregnant. I believe that Drew Barrymore would be like Hollywood's baby girl. Do you know what I mean? I feel like Hollywood birthed her out and she was Hollywood's child. She was not the child of two mere mortals. She was the child of Hollywood itself. Like she's just like not even of this world. And her childhood is something that I just. I mean, you really, you can't, it, it could never be recreated. You couldn't write it. And whoever is lucky enough in the future, whatever like pageant girl is lucky enough in however many years to play her as a child in the movie about Drew Barrymore's life. Girl, if you're listening right now in spirit or whatever, you're lucky. Do her justice. Work on the lisp. Get it right. You know what I mean? Because she, it, it's a lot. And she it really has lived like a crazy, crazy life. Um, now, Drew and Tom initially met uh, on the set of Charlie's Angels. And uh, she, I mean, she loved his show, the Tom Green show, which was on MTV. We'll obviously get to that. She asked him to be a part of it. Um, She made a cameo appearance on his show as well. And that's kind of how the whole thing took off. They sort of immediately fell in love. And Drew is also very unlucky in love. She falls hard. She falls very fast. And her relationships don't last very long. Um, I, I, she kind of reminds me of somebody who loves very hard, but is just maybe not sort of meant to be tied down. I don't see her as somebody who is meant to just be with one person for the rest of her life. She strikes me as someone who kind of lets people in and learns from them and, and, you know, 
learns about herself through them and then just kind of like moves on to the next thing. Cause she's a wildflower after all. Um, now it was rumored speaking of <laughs> speaking of being a wildflower, it was rumored that drew cheated on Tom with her co-star in Charlie's angels, uh, Sam Rockwell, who is hot as fuck. You may remember him from the scene where he like, I mean, he's the villain in Charlie's angels, but he like puts the duct tape on her mouth and draws lips on her. Um, and he, he calls her like a sweet peach or something creepy. Uh, he's super hot. I have a huge crush on him and, uh, never, never been confirmed, but it was always a rumor that he cheated on, or she, uh, excuse me, I'm belching because the beer is, I promised, uh, that she cheated on Tom with him. And, uh, Tom actually gave a little bit of a quote about that later on that we'll get to. Drew also stuck with Tom through his very famous testicular cancer scare, uh, and he very famously stuck with her through a f- crazy fire that burnt down her mansion. Um, I mean, they had a very, <laughs> a very eventful short little relationship where a lot of crazy shit was going on in both of their lives. Um, I also believe they had this very sort of like attention seeking dynamic. I think they brought out the worst in each other as far as being like showboaty and attention seeking and sort of needing to be on a, uh, like a milk crate at all times, like having to be the funniest one in the room, you know, having to be the most unique one in a room. I think they both sort of brought out the worst of each other in that way. And it was like, playful but like not playful in the way that you enjoy like playful in the way that you like cringe because a person is like embarrassing themselves and they don't know um so like not funny (laughs) you know what i mean and by the way again hard for me to type that hard for me to say it hard for me to speak it i don't like to say anything negative about drew as i've said before i think when you spout out negativity about drew barrymore all you're doing is just punching your ticket on your one-way trip to hell where you belong So if that means I'll go to hell for that comment, then I think I deserve it. I would happily burn eternally knowing that I've crossed you very more because I would deserve the pain. Um, But yeah, they reminded me a little bit of like, um, like a Jenny McCarthy and like a Drew, Drew, (laughs) you know, when, when Jenny McCarthy dated Drew Carey, um, like a Jenny and and a Jim Carey kind of situation. Do you remember like when Jenny dated Drew, uh, God damn it. When she dated Jim and she started like adapting his voices and she became funny in a way that like, she was never funny. Like that's not how we knew Jenny to be funny by like making those faces and like doing that voice. She like was doing like the liar, liar voice and like talking like Ace Ventura. It's kind of the same thing. It was like a very, it's a very sort of like the more dominant funny one becomes the one that the other one just sort of like piggybacks off of and not in a way that they're doing it intentionally. It's just like what happens naturally and it's very obnoxious. Um, And it's also just like a very niche sort of like humor. It's not something that everybody, like not everybody loves. I know I, I never really did. Not everybody loves like that kind of humor. You know what I mean? Even Jim Carrey is a very specific kind of humor. It's not for everybody. By the way, when I say the word niche, it reminds me of the word quiche, which reminds me of Jamee Private School Girl, <laughs> like immediately. And it's the only thing I can think of. And in my head, I just hear like, you think you're so fucking quiche, Jamee? <laughs> you think you're so fucking quiche, Jamee? You're really not that quiche. Anyway, I think that we should start talking about 
the reason that we're here, our sweet, sweet, lispy angel, Drew Barrymore. So as I mentioned earlier, this was a little bit of a transitional time in Drew's life. Transitional and also very exciting. Like, it felt like she was becoming very comfortable sort of taking on like a more boss, like, you know, boss bitch Bethany Frankel role in her life. Like she had settled into adulthood in a way that felt very different than, you know, years prior. Like, I think this is where she really started to kind of like lay out the foundation for her future. She really started thinking about like the longevity of her career. And instead of trying to pander and like, you know, fight for roles or like fight to, to be a part of projects. Like she just sort of started doing her own thing, which I think is the kind of the smartest thing you can do in this industry. Like when you're not somebody that feels like you've been heard in the way that you, you know, like to be heard, you make your own shit, do your own thing. You know what I mean? Um, she was doing more passion products, passion products. She was being more creative. Like she had a lot of really fun stuff going on at this time. And I mean, like, okay, so a few years later, like in 1995, she started her now very famous production company, Flower Films, with Jimmy Fallon's wife, Nancy. I never know how to pronounce Nancy's last name. Can somebody help me? Nancy Javonin? Is that right? Javonin? I guess that would be it. J-U-V-O-N-E-N. Javonin? Um... Their first film was Never Been Kissed. That was released in 1999. Obviously made a fuck ton of money and became like a romantic comedy cult classic. Everybody loves Never Been Kissed. It's not, it's always in people's top 10 list. Like it may not be number one, but it's always up there. You know what I mean? Everybody loves Never Been Kissed. And prior to that, Drew, you know, she starred in like these back-to-back like big budget box office hits that really totally sort of like restored her image in Hollywood as a bankable reliable star after <laughs> the like hellstorm she created in the nineties by like flashing her tits and being promiscuous and sort of openly not being sober anymore. I'm sorry. I'm smiling right now because I'm looking up at my TV and Netflix is on and the, the Santa Clarita diet just came up as like a screensaver and Drew's like staring at me and smiling. So like, obviously I'm, I'm like where I'm supposed to be in life, which is like, feels really good. Um, but yeah, she had gone through this sort of like Lindsay Lohan phase of Hollywood being like, I don't know about her anymore. I don't know if she can carry a film. Like, I don't know if an audience will be interested in seeing her anymore. She's like kind of lost it. You know what I mean? So a lot of people started to sort of distance themselves from her, uh, you know, in a work sense. And she really needed to sort of redeem herself, not only for the audience, but like for Hollywood itself. Like people didn't really want to work with Drew Barrymore or take a chance on her. She was becoming sort of like a box office. She wasn't making hits anymore. You know what I mean? She was not somebody that people wanted to ensure, which honestly just goes to show you that even though this business is fucking terrifying. And by this business, I just mean Hollywood in general, terrifying, like abusive to children, abusive to addicts, abusive to, minorities, abusive to women, you know what I mean? Abusive to men. Like it's just, if you're, you're being in some way abused or emotionally scarred if you're in Hollywood. Um, but the one thing that you can say about Hollywood is that it's always, Hollywood is always open to a good comeback. You know what I mean? Because that narrative of having this big, crazy comeback works 
not only for the person, but it also works for the industry. You know what I mean? Everybody benefits from somebody having a successful comeback and becoming lucrative again, especially for the director who decides to sort of like pick. I mean, like imagine being the director who takes a chance on, you know, like a a mid to late 20s Drew Barrymore who is sort of floundering and doesn't know what to do. And you decide to take a chance on her. And you're the reason that Drew Barrymore, the beloved child star from E.T., was able to revamp her career and like reintroduce herself into Hollywood. You know what I mean? Like that's a big deal. Perfect example, by the way, one of my favorite people in the entire world that I bring up all the time in the Emotionally Broken Psychos Facebook group, especially um, a few months ago when Tom Sandoval had Weave. I don't know if you guys remember or not, but Tom Sandoval on this this most recent season of Vanderpump Rules, he literally had beaded hair extensions, which, like, no shade. Like, I love Tom. I think that he can do no wrong. I don't see any harm in anything Tom does. I literally think he's a perfect specimen, and uh, I think Ariana is, like, very lucky to have him. But he had Weave. A uh, very ratty weave. It, it, he had white weave. Um, it was very like Corey Feldman-ish, very like early J.C. Chazé when he was like making wild choices with his hair. It was very Mickey Rourke. I compare it a lot to Mickey Rourke because Mickey Rourke loves a good beaded hair extension attached to like a greasy, wet, straight, like long, like thin piece of hair. Um, but Mickey Rourke is somebody who... You know, he started a career in Hollywood with everything going for him. You know, he was a leading man. He was gorgeous. He was really fucking hot. And not really like anybody before him. I mean, Mickey Rourke was like very unique in the sense that he could fucking act his ass off. And he was very anti-establishment, like anti like the Hollywood system. And he was just like, you know, he was like a renegade. He was like a hot renegade. And everybody thought, you know, Mickey Rourke would have this long, lucrative, you know, successful, crazy career where he would play leading men, you know what I mean? And he would make a shit ton of money. Like, he had everything in the cards for him. And his issues with addiction sort of took over his life. He became, you know, hard to work with. He was insufferable on set. He would, like, threaten directors and, you know, threaten the actors he was working with and try and fight people in the crew. And he just kind of lost his shit. And like I said, he let his addiction take over his life. He then destroyed his beautiful face. I don't know if you guys have ever looked, like, gone back and looked at old Mickey Rourke. Like, I don't know if you, some of you may only know him as, like, this creepy figure that looks like an animal that's, like, making himself larger to it, like, to scare off other animals. He used to be beautiful. Please watch another nine and a half weeks with Kim Basinger and Mickey Rourke, where he like makes her crawl on the ground and like fucking eat honey and shit off the ground or whatever. He was like unbelievably attractive. Also, by the way, another side note, like 90s sexual thrillers are my favorite kind of movie. <laughs> like nine, another nine and a half weeks is like, in my top five, I love Fatal Attraction, Basic Instinct. Like, that's my go-to genre. Like, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. I love, like, a 90s sexual thriller where, like, at the end of it, somebody's, like, wielding a knife. So if you have any that you'd like to recommend to me, I'm not kidding. Please tell me. I'll put them in my queue today. Anyway, um, but yeah, he goes on. He fucking destroys his gorgeous face with botched plastic surgeries. He goes out in L.A. and finds some crackhead to 
put fucking beaded hair extensions in his hair and he i mean just kind of flushed his career down the toilet i don't really know what what else to call i mean he just kind of gave up everything he had worked for and that was it mickey rourke was completely uninsurable he was like i'm pretty sure homeless uh he was an alcoholic a drug addict he hadn't acted in years the only things the only projects that people were hiring him for were like very low budget like um, you know, really bad action movies, like movies that were straight to DVD or straight to video, like his career was over. And then a director decides to take a chance on him and, and be responsible for Mickey Rourke's comeback, who at one time was a sought after, you know, amazing. Because the thing is, is that if at one point we see you that way in this country, if you make the right decisions, we can always go back to viewing you that way. You just have to sort of play your cards right. So this director decides to take a chance on Mickey Rourke, pairs her alongside Raven goddess Marissa Tomei. Don't get me started. Don't even get me started on Marissa Tomei, how much I fucking love her. Again, another woman who has done no wrong, can do no wrong, and will do no wrong. And uh, your ticket to hell will be punched as well if you say anything negative about Marissa Tomei, because what could you say? Um, and then the fucker goes and gets nominated for an Oscar. Like he goes from walking around New York city with long pointed, like snakeskin cowboy boots and beaded hair extensions and a face that is beat to hell to then being nominated for an Oscar. Like that's like something that you cannot write. And, you know, at that moment, that's when like, you know, all of the, the like terrible press that you had like that of somebody like that had out before, you know, and I, not even like a year prior, they all become these like very interesting think pieces about Mickey Rourke and his rise and fall and his rise from the ashes, like a Phoenix and blah, 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 blah. And it's all this like subject matter that's becomes very interesting to ponder, you know, Mickey Rourke's time off. Like when he was doing straight to blockbuster VHS tapes and blah, blah, blah. And then you go on Oprah and Oprah talks to you about what you've learned from, you know, the time, the dark time in your life to now you're back, baby. You know what I mean? Like it's, we've seen it a million times. It's a, it's a tale as old as time. And I think the longer you last in this career or in this industry, I think it's interesting for people, for somebody, you know, like Drew Barrymore, who has had this incredibly long career since she was a baby and she's had highs and lows and she's had comebacks and and moments of being A-list and moments of being D-list and moments of being completely written off by Hollywood and moments of being an it girl. You know what I mean? She's had moments of being a child star who was, I mean, she's gone through sort of every reiteration that you can go through in Hollywood of being, you know, kicked out, kicked down kicked wire down, totally applauded. You know what I mean? She's sort of, she's seen it all. And I don't know. I just, I think that that's really interesting, especially somebody like her, who, like I said, she's been in this industry industry since she was a little girl. So she's really seen it all. And the way that you're able to sort of navigate that, I always talk about this, like the way that you're able to navigate your career when you've had one for 20 or 30, 40 something years is interesting. Cause no matter what, like, it doesn't matter how high you are at the moment. Like you, there's a chance that you will fall and it's just a matter of time before it happens and how you can sort of pick yourself up and, you know, take, choose that 
perfectly, perfectly, perfect role that changes the rest of your entire life. Um, but anyway, so back to Drew. I mean, so in 1998, she starred in The Wedding Singer, which grossed a shit ton of money, of course. It made like 130 something million dollars at the box office, became, you know, an, an instant cult classic. I mean, The Wedding Singer, again, is another, I say most people's at least top five favorite romantic comedy um, during the, the heyday of Adam Sandler. And she also starred in Home Fries and Ever After, which was the Cinderella adaption. And both those films were really successful in the box office. So she had really redeemed herself. She had shown herself to be somebody that like audiences would be interested in seeing again, that, you know, that she could hold the attention of an audience and hold the attention of a movie. She could be a leading lady and she was adaptable. She could do this or that. You know, when you watch a movie, you are always aware of the fact that it's Drew Barrymore, but there are certain people where, like, that doesn't matter. It's okay that Drew Barrymore is still always kind of Drew Barrymore in a movie because she's just great. Um, So in October of 1999, news broke that Drew would be producing and starring in a remake of the 1970s CBS television show Charlie's Angels. Can we talk so the cast of the original i'm sorry the, the cast was originally said to be drew it was going to be drew barrymore cameron diaz and the original third member was going to be elizabeth hurley who was also rumored at the time to play laura croft in tomb raider so i guess she was like elizabeth hurley was looking to sort of make like a name for herself in uh i don't know like in action films which is like really weird to think about i guess she just like settled on austin powers um but yeah, so it was going to be Elizabeth Hurley, Drew, and Cameron Diaz, um, and that was going to be, um, and that was sort of supposed to be Elizabeth Hurley's like new thing for the turn of the millennium that she would turn into this like what Angelina Jolie actually ended up becoming, from what I've read, because I kind of like did a little bit of a deep dive on that, and I found that really interesting. All the different movies that she was, you know, supposed to be a part of or turned down or was originally tied to. Um, other potential angels included Foxy Brown, which would have been <laughs> fucking incredible, uh, Janet Jackson, Nicolette Sheridan, and Stacey Dash, until Lucy Liu won the part, obviously. And, um, I mean, look, I don't mean to take you to a dark place. I want this to remain a fun podcast, but can you imagine a world where Stacey Dash was in Charlie's Angels? Like, can you picture if Stacey Dash was Charlie's Angels instead of fucking Lucy Liu? the most boss bitch ever. Also, it just makes me sad that we're like not allowed to like Stacey Dash anymore because she's, 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 she means so much to our youth. You know what I mean? She means so much to our growing up. She means so much to our past, but she's just such a fucking cunt, you know, like it's over for her. We can never, we can't go back. We can't have sympathy for Stacey Dash. You have to turn your, you have to turn your head and pretend not to see her because it's over. She's just too fucking terrible. Um, but having seen and loved his music videos, Drew asked director Mick G to uh, take on the movie and be the director, which was crazy because Mick G had never directed a film ever. He had literally had only done music videos. Um, he had a really hard time initially getting a network to like even get behind the idea. And he was an, originally only paid $350,000 to be a part of the project. Like, Nobody really trusted in his ability besides Drew that he could pull this together because 
there was no evidence that he could do it. Um, and the film itself actually received really mixed reviews from critics, which I think had a lot to do with the fact that the movie was legitimately just meant to be fun and entertaining and not take itself seriously. And I mean, especially when you go back now and watch Charlie's Angels, like it's legitimately only supposed to entertain you. It's not supposed to make you think deeply. Not everything is supposed to make sense. Things are, I mean, obviously the angels couldn't fly, you dumb fuckers. Like, calm down with your IMDb posts. It's supposed to just be silly and fun and entertaining. And I thought that that's what it was. I used to literally be obsessed with Charlie's Angels. I used to watch this movie all the time. Like, I won't tell you how much because it would, like, really embarrass me. But I used to literally watch this movie all the time like daily i would come home from school and just like pop it in like it was one of those movies you know when you're young i don't know if maybe other people did this or not but when you're young and like you have a favorite movie and there are favorite scenes and sometimes you'll even just like fast forward to like the scene that you wanted to like start with like i would come home all the time when i was like super little and watch spice world every day after school like every straight male does after elementary school and I would just like fast forward to like the best scenes of the movie. So I'd watch like 20 minutes of it and then just like stop and like watch something else. But I would do it like every single day. <laughs> Charlie's Angels was one of those movies for me in middle school where I would just like, I'd be like, I just want to watch them like fight the creepy thin men for a minute. Or like, I just want to like watch Drew pretend to know how to moonwalk. You know what I mean? Um, now Drew and McGee had a very strict for Charlie's Angels. There was a no gun policy for the angels they were trying to sort of like recreate the brand and bring something new to it and bring this like different sense of sort of like female empowerment and like anti-gun violence to the, to the, to the film, which I actually thought was like pretty cool. Um, Charlie's angels also helped in popularizing what we call in this country wire foo. I don't know if you guys are familiar, but it's that style of fighting and in like it started in Hong Kong, but it's a style of fighting in movies where like, you can like fly. <laughs> I think it originated. I mean, well, it didn't originate, but it got really popular in this country with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I think that's where people sort of really took took a a, a liking to wire foo. But it's when you know you can like fly through the air and like walk on leaves. And I mean, if you watch Charlie J- Charlie's Angels, they literally like like hover off the ground and like spin around in circles for thirty minutes, like. It's completely unrealistic, but it's supposed to just sort of add, like, a whimsical sort of, like, dramatic effect to them fighting. Which, again, I actually thought was really cool. I remember reading, like, reviews and stuff about people saying, like, it doesn't look real. How did Cameron Diaz, like, do this and do that? It's like, yeah, fucker. Like, you can't, like, take a step back and, like, dive through the slit of a, of a fucking chain leak fence. It ain't physically possible, but, like, everybody else is aware except for you. It's supposed to be, like, silly. You guys, I hate to cut you off, but at this point, I think you know the drill. You gotta be a Patreon member to hear the remainder of this episode. So, go to patreon.com slash ebpsychos. At that point, you will uh, be asked to donate, and then when you donate at this level, you'll get this podcast you'll get the remainder of all the episodes every single week you'll get liz bentley's feathers in my hair which is the teen mom podcast um you'll get me and molly's uh britney and kevin chaotic special you'll get all the stuff that molly does exclusively through patreon 
It's well worth it. And also, if you're not a member of our Facebook group, go to mollyandthepsychos.com. It'll take you straight to it. And uh, all we do all day and all night is talk about reality TV. It's super fun. So, like I said, patreon.com slash ebpsychos and mollyandthepsychos.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.